I, I've always thought of myself as a pretty good swimmer. Uh, I've always enjoyed swimming. I've never had any trouble with it. Um, I was a lifeguard for a little while, and, and so it was nothing to me one time when I was in high school, and our church at the time, Dad had started a church, and they didn't have a baptistry in the building, so when it came time to baptize some people, we just went out to the lake and had a big picnic as a church and then baptized some people there at the lake. And, uh, and then we also played around in the lake a good bit that day, and it was nothing to me when one of my friends, another teenager, said, hey, I bet we can swim across this section of the lake. It's not that far away to the far side of the church, or far shore. We were in a bit of a cove, but it was still a pretty good distance. It was enough to where boat traffic was going on between us. And he goes, I bet we could swim across the other side. And me, as a teenager, not particularly good at gauging risks, I said, yeah, let's do it. And so we start swimming. And we're going and we're doing just fine. We make it across and uh, we're having a good, you know, just catch our breath and then turn around and we're coming back when it's discovered that we've made this foolish effort. And, uh, and, and we did fine and we made it all the way back, but we were in trouble. And uh, again, not particularly good at gauging risk. I didn't understand why we we're in so much trouble. We know to swim, it wasn't that far. Worst case, we could always just float for a little while out there in the lake. We knew what we were doing. It was at this time that my youth pastor told me a story of when he was a kid, and uh, he went swimming by himself in a lake that was very familiar to him, and he went to regularly, and there were some little islands out on the lake, and, uh, and so one day he'd swam over to one of the islands and was hanging around there and just poking around on this little lake island. When it came time to go back, he started swimming back, but he got tired, and so he just decided to back float for a little while, and it was a beautiful summer day, and so he's just floating around there in the lake for a little while. Turns out a little while was longer than he thought it was, and when he looked up, he was much further away from both the shore and the island than he had been originally, and it was scary. The amount that you can drift in a small amount of time can be terrifying. You can drift quite a bit in a short amount of time, and it's, it's scary to think about how far you can drift, how quickly. This is the concern of our passage in Scripture today, as the writer of Hebrews writes to them to remind them who Jesus is and how central Jesus is to their faith and to warn them against this kind of drift in our belief and in our lives that can happen just like that. And suddenly we find ourselves very far away from the Savior who we've trusted. So let's pray together and let's read Scripture, all right? Father God, I pray that You would hold us near to You, and that You would keep us close. I pray that You would teach us from Your Word today so that we could know You and obey You better. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, the writer says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Well, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He became 
So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's stop here for a moment. First, to warn against drift, the writer reminds them who Christ is. He says, when we're talking about Christ, we're talking about God's very way of speaking to us. Right of Hebrews says, you know, in the past, God would send a prophet here and a prophet there. There would be this prophet. Ezekiel would come, and he would tell God's people a message from God. Isaiah would come, and he would tell God's people a message from God. And Jeremiah would come, and whether the people are lis- would listen or not, I want to say it's anybody's guess, but really nobody ever listened to the prophets that God would send. He says, but God came and He spoke through the prophets to His people, but now God Himself has come and is the one who has spoken to us. In these last days, He says, God has spoken to us directly and that God Himself came down and took on flesh, walked around, and spoke to His people. And about this Son of God, Jesus Christ, God appointed Him heir of all things, This isn't just some person who God liked more than other people that he should inherit things. No. See, Christ is God himself because God made the universe through him. You're to understand here this way God speaks to his people through Christ. There's a connection between this and how God creates all things. How did God create all things? Speaking by his word. You're supposed to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all together at work in creation. The Son, Jesus Christ, is not something that's created. Rather, everything that's ever been made was made through Him, the very Word of God and the way God speaks. And so the Father has appointed Him heir of all things because He made the universe through Him. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature. There's no difference in power, in ability, in glory, in goodness or characteristics between the Father and the Son. The Son is not a lesser version of God the Father by virtue of the fact that He is a Son, but rather He is exactly the same in glory, exactly the same in power, and in all things that are a part of God's nature. See, goodness is a part of God's nature, and so the Father and the Son are exactly the same in goodness, graciousness, kindness, patience. These things that are a part of the nature of who God is are equally a part of who the Son is as is who the Father is, and this really excites me here. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, exact expression of His own nature, and He is sustaining all things by His powerful Word. God does not simply speak creation into being, but Christ is sustaining all things by His Word. Sometimes you get to feeling like God is far away in life, and He never is. You just get to feeling that God is far away, but quite the opposite of being far away, He is near, but He's not just near, He is actually sustaining and holding together all things by His Word, by His will, and by His power. So you might ask, well, what's the difference then between the Father and the Son? If they're exactly equal in all these ways, how do you distinguish them? The way we talk as the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not by nature and not by power. They're all all identical in power, glory, and nature. The way we talk about them is by what they do differently and how they function together. 
So what did the Son do? After making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Just briefly, one of the ways we think about this is in all things, God works together, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In creation, you have the Father who wills it to be created, the Son who all things are created through Him, the Word of God by which God works, and the Holy Spirit who empowers God's work, who is there in Genesis chapter 1, hovering, so to speak, over the surface of the water, Scripture tells us. So likewise, in our salvation, they all three work together just in different ways. It is the Father who wants you to be saved. God wills your salvation, that Christ should die for you. It is the Son, Jesus Christ, who did the work of your salvation, and it is the Holy Spirit who is empowering you now and was empowering Christ then to do the work of God. In all things, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together. I really like this. After making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You know, do you know when it's time to sit down? At what point in your work it's time to sit down? When it's all finished. It is finished. It is done. You sit down. And you sit down powerfully and in glory sometimes. Once, long ago, I was playing pool, billiards, if you will, with some friends, right? We're playing pool. I'm terrible at it, but I'm good enough to where periodically I can make a miraculous shot and look like I know what I'm doing. And so, yeah, yeah, every once in a while, every once in a while we get down to the point where I'm actually taking a shot at the eight ball uh, periodically every once in a while. One time, playing pool with a friend, and I was having one of those good games. It's my turn to take a shot at the eight ball. I say, eight ball, call my shot, corner pocket, way down there, let's do this. And I make this miraculous shot at which the ball kind of goes around another one and slowly, gently just drops into the pocket. I raise my hands in the air, do a little circle for the crowd, and then walk over, drop the pool cue, and sit down (laughs) in glory. This is what's going on here but far more glorious, clearly. He made purification for sins. He made a way for us to be right by dying on the cross. And then what does He do? Well, there's nothing else to do. He sits down, enthroned in glory because the work is completed. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who we are to worship. The passage continues, and this interesting section that happens next, as you've perhaps read Hebrews before, can be a bit of a stumper sometimes, because now the writer is going to go on this discourse about how Jesus is better than the angels. But read it with me, and let's talk about this Jesus of ours we're not to drift from, and how He is better than the angels. Verse 5, "'For to which of the angels did the Father ever say, "'You are my Son, today I have become your Father,' or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. If you're reading along in the Pew Bible, you're to understand that the embolded uh, verses are quotations from the Old Testament. You can look those up at the bottom if you wanted to. Verse 6, again, when uh, he brings his uh, firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. 
You have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the work of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak. They will be changed like clothing. But you are the same, and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Pause here. This is a long excursus to explain how Jesus is better than the angels. So the writer of Hebrews says here, look, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. Understand from Scripture is what he's saying to his readers that there's angels and spiritual beings out there, but Jesus is far greater than all of them. And this might not be a problem for you. So you might come to this passage and go, why are we talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels? Let's just skip on to chapter 2. I know He's greater than the angels. This isn't a problem for me. However, it might be in a certain way. Let's assume there are two things going on about why this writer has to say, no, no, Jesus wasn't just some spiritual being. Jesus was God Himself and is greater than all spiritual beings. One, it's frequently assumed that there was pressure on these Christians to go back to Judaism. If you, being a Christian, in the decades after Christ died and rose again and went to heaven, you hear the gospel and you believe, but you're still in a Jewish society, and there's pressure for you to revert back. You've converted to Christianity, and there's pressure to revert back to Judaism. One way to do that and save faith, because, I mean, Jewish people have read the Old Testament. They know there's these angels, these ministering spirits. They know there's all kinds of angels who come in great power on behalf of God and deliver God's message. And so perhaps if you would just say, not that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God, but you could save face and revert back to your old ways if you just say, well, he, was, he must have been just an angel, a messenger from God who came in power and did the ministry and the work of God, but he's not God himself. See, that's what's offensive to everybody else is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is in fact God. So there's this pressure on believers at that time to say, well, I mean, I wasn't entirely wrong to worship Jesus, but I mean, now I understand He's not God. He's just one of these ministering angels. There's this pressure from the world to drift back to the old way they were, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether then or now, sets you apart from a lot of other people. It sets you apart from the world to say, no, Jesus is Lord. And so there is pressure to drift back and save face in their old ways, and you're to understand the believers are doing this. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 let's go back and look at the Old Testament. Let's go back and look at the law of Moses and read everything. You guys know God wrote all that part? Okay, well then let me show you from that part how Jesus is far superior. He's not like all these other spiritual beings. He is like God because He is God. But second of all, While there's this pressure to deny Christ and save faith and drift back to your old way of believing, second, there is, you're to understand at the time, an excitement about spiritual things. There's an excitement about angels and thinking about these that go on within the culture there, both Greek culture, 
that was highly influenced in believing in all sorts of spiritual things happening, but also Jewish culture. All the culture was thinking and uh, constantly preoccupied with spiritual realities and what was going on and thinking about angels and demons and ministering in these things. I mean, for us in some pockets of America and some pockets of our culture, there's just radical materialism, just there's nothing besides flesh and blood. When you die, that's it. There's no souls. There's no spirit. That's a part of our culture. There are people out there who say that, but far more people, even if they don't trust Christ or believe in Christ, they still want to be kind of spiritual. You know, they still get vaguely have ideas about spirits and angels and ghosts and all these things that are going on, and they get excited about this. You're to understand that perhaps Christians at that time were getting excited about something good, like angels and things that are going on. They're excited about spiritual realities, but to the detriment of following Christ. See, they were no longer thinking about and rejoicing in who God is and that He came down to make forgiveness of their, for their sins. Instead, they were starting to get excited about something good, angels, good, ministers of God. Angels are clearly real. Angels are working on behalf of God for believers. Verse 14 says they are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. You would understand that God has these servants, these angels that are, on, on, that are at work doing His will, but are also at work, working for us by His will, not as rogue agents, but God has these servants that are working on His behalf. But you're not to get excited about that and drift away from rejoicing at who Jesus Christ is as Lord. So, if the first problem for them is that the world gives them this pressure to drift away from trusting Christ exclusively, well, there's this second tendency that comes up in all of our lives and in theirs, which is to get really excited about something that's good, but that isn't, in fact, Jesus Christ, our Lord, where our focus is. We just have to face this reality about ourselves. We can get excited about good things, and our life get focused on good things, but focused on good things to the detriment of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You could see this, perhaps by way of illustration and analogy, you can see this sometimes in a marriage. Cannot one spouse in a marriage sometimes get really excited about some good thing, some work that they want to do, some life, work, and career to the detriment and forgetting about and neglect of the other one in the marriage? This can happen, and this is never good, this kind of drift from what is primary to what is good, but not primary. This happens in Christianity quite a bit, perhaps for a somewhat dated reference. In the last 15, 20 years, 30 years, the diet fads, there were Christian diet fads, right? There was like the Daniel diet and some of these things, and none of it's wrong. By all means, live a healthy life, eat a healthy diet, but some of these uh, Christianity became for a lot of people, or the focus of churches became in seasons, let's talk about getting healthy, Christian diet fads, and that's not bad or wrong, you understand. In order to be a good application of this, something that can distract us, it actually has to be a good thing, but something that distracts us from what our primary thing is, knowing Christ and loving Him. 
So that's sometimes there were diet fads. Other times it was like finances and financial peace, financial health. Again, really good. By all means, don't be a fool. Take care, be cautious and careful about your money so that you can be generous like God wants you to be. But perhaps for certain people and at certain times, that became the focus of a season of their life and they missed following Christ while they were looking at something exciting. Even perhaps... There was a popular series of books, Jesus Calling, and its sequels uh, that came out in the last 15 years. A well-meaning Christian lady who just sort of wrote, here's what she thinks God was saying to her, and here's what she thinks God would be saying to you. She wasn't claiming uh, to actually be giving you a fresh revelation or being a prophet, but it was sort of her way of saying, here's what she thought God was saying. It was all really kind and uplifting and helpful, but... The trouble is, if your focus became on what somebody else thought God might would say to you, to the detriment of actually coming to know what God has said to you clearly and pursuing His true, real Word, well, then it's a problem like these others. Now, perhaps for the current one, we're all sort of making fun of ourselves and our culture for how popular self-care has become, Right? Self-care is a pretty popular topic. There have been uh, po- all major media outlets, I mean, it was NPR, so we can make fun of that, but it was also Fox News, has had out articles in the last two weeks uh, to the gist of, man, stuff's pretty bad in Ukraine. Let's talk about how to take care of yourself and make sure your emotions are all right, which is a little strange given that people are dying uh, somewhere in the world, and we're talking about how to make sure we can live with the anxiety of that in our lives. Again, to be very clear, By all means, take care of yourself. Get enough sleep at night. Uh, Get yourself out of toxic environments and relationships. But it's possible that the idea of self-care becomes primary to us, and we forget about loving and worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord, is it not? Perhaps for some people it would be changes in culture or holding on to a cultural moment or a cultural expression that they loved. And in doing so, caring about something that is good and good and good, have let go of the one who is great, and their affections have drifted from the God who is great to the things that are good. By way of personal illustration, this passage convicts me in this way because I've spent a lot of time in the last few years thinking about, and so you've heard me say the phrase, the good life. Thinking about what is the life well lived? What is a worthy life before God? Meredith tells me regularly I should stop saying the phrase good life because I talk about it too often. But but I'm always thinking about what is a life well lived? And what does it look like for us to follow God rightly and pursue Him rightly? And so I spend a lot of time on a semi-philosophical question. What is a good life? What does a good day look like? What have you accomplished in a good week? What does it look like to raise good children? And I spend so much time focusing on these questions, which I assure you are excellent. You should think about these things. I'm not going to stop thinking about these things. But that it's entirely possible that in pursuit of the good life and in pursuit of being a good father, I have stopped at times of prioritizing loving my great God first and foremost. This drift can happen to any of us for all sorts of reasons, and that's why the writer of Hebrews for them has to say, no, no, remember, 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 Christ is better than the angels. Yes, there's a spiritual reality and there are ministering angels. Yes, there are angels all around, 
but don't forget that they are simply servants of Jesus Christ, who is the God who loves you and is present in your life, who came down, who sustains everything around you, who has made forgiveness for sins, and who is sitting on His throne in glory even now. Oh, praise Him and Him alone. Let's continue on. Chapter 2. For this reason, the writer says, we must pay attention. I'll read it again. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through the angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This salvation has its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord. It will be confirmed to us by those who heard Him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, the distribution of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to His will. Here it is, the conclusion from the author of Hebrews. Therefore, pay attention to what you have heard so that we do not drift away. He says this is serious, first of all, because everything is at stake. God's justice is real, and His judgment is coming for sin and for sinners. So we have this incredible salvation, whereas we've been sinners, and we've sinned, and we remain tempted to sin. But God has forgiven us. All of it. All of it. God has forgiven us. How could we neglect so great a salvation as what you and I have been saved from? We must not neglect this great salvation. We must not forget how great the judgment we deserve is and how much greater the salvation is that we have received from Him. Let us not drift away, but rather let us pay attention. Speaking of drifting away, for a while I was trying to go fishing while kayaking Kayak fishing seems like a cheaper way to do this, and it sure is. The hard thing about fishing while you're kayaking is you've got to be like paddling and fishing at the same time because you'll constantly be drifting. And, uh, and so you're, you're always drifting around. A couple of times I went with some friends, and we went down to the coast into some of the inner coastal waterways and channels where the tides were happening, and, and you just kind of generally would let the tide take you one direction and then let the tide take you back a little bit later that day and just plan on being all out in your boat the whole time. One time... This is just another illustration of drifting. One time, I was yeah, one time I wasn't catching anything. It wasn't just one time, but uh, on this time again, like other times, I wasn't catching anything. But we had gotten up real early to drive down to the coast, and I was tired, so I just paddled myself back up into some reeds and anchored myself into some grass, and I just laid down uh, on my kayak to take a good nap right there. I did. I took a good little nap, and when I woke up, I was not in the same place. <laughs> that I had anchored myself. Yeah, and it was funny, and I was okay, uh, but it's a little dangerous and terrifying. We have to understand that drift is what is normal. There is both this gravity from the world that would draw us back to our old way of life, and that there's even this gravity inside of us that would suck our attention over to something that is good at the neglect of loving what is great. One of the most grievous things for me in ministry over the years, and for you too, I'm sure, 
is seeing people who had come on fire for the Lord just sort of drift away. It wasn't one thing in particular. It wasn't this, it wasn't that. They just sort of drifted away. Perhaps they were offended by something. Something offended them, and they just let distance happen. Perhaps they were distracted by something. Things, distractions, they always show up again and again, do they not? Some new obligation, some suddenly busier schedule. I've watched again and again with sorrow to see people who I care dearly about not turn away from the faith rejecting it and hear some good intellectual argument and say, I don't think this is true anymore. I'm going to go, I don't believe, I'm leaving. I've never really seen anybody just go, you know what, actually I've thought it through some more and I don't believe this. Nobody's ever done that. But I've seen people slowly drift and allow a little bit of sin to become a little bit more sin, to become a little bit more sin, to allow some time off or a break or some distance from somebody who made them grumpy become a whole season of their life and then years in which they didn't deal with these things and slowly drifted away from worshiping Christ with the congregation. See people sometimes who had an area of service in the church, like that was their area of service and their ministry activity, and then something changed in their life, a health episode or something happened, and they're no longer doing that particular service area, and it turns out that was something that was helping them to stay anchored and keep them attending church, and then they sort of disappear and drift away. And it's tragic and it's sad. In fact, if you want to know on this side of things, there's this pastoral advice that goes around amongst uh, pastors and church people uh, that is, you need to create, they say, dear pastor, you create a bunch of jobs. Doesn't matter what. Just put out a bunch of sign-up sheets for all kinds of stuff. Created jobs, uh, whether it's needed or not or necessary, so that somebody has some reason to be there to hold them there. And it's not, it's maybe not bad advice. Kind of throw you a bone a little bit, help you have some reason. People are going to miss you if you're not there, so you'd better be there. Perhaps it is helpful. But perhaps I'll leave that for you to do. Create yourself an area of ministry. Seek out for yourself a way to anchor yourself and to be necessary in all gatherings. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Would you like to continue adding more lists of distractions to the things that can distract us, good and bad? How about American politics? How about world politics? How about work? How about, I mean, let's just get a dry erase board out and fill the dry erase board with all of these things that would seek good things, evil worldly things, all of these things that would seek to drift our attention away from God. But I say to you today, dear friends, pay attention. Pay attention because drift is real, and I've experienced it in my life, and I bet you've experienced it in your life too. Pay attention because drift is real. Pay attention to what God says to you in Scripture. Don't say this in a self-serving way. I say it for your sake. Don't miss an opportunity of the gathering of the church because the drift will happen if you do. Pay attention because everything is at stake. He says pay attention because we have been saved from such a great uh, punishment that is coming. Pay attention because everything in your life is at stake on this. Pay attention because faith comes by hearing, 
in hearing the Word of God. If the opposite of drift is growing in faith, well, then here's how you will grow in faith. Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the Word of God. Let us not neglect this great salvation of ours. Let us not forget this great Jesus Christ of ours. Listen, friends, if, if, let us remember who Christ is. Let us prize Jesus Christ in our hearts as Lord and Savior. Let us pay attention and let us seek Him. Don't allow good things to distract you from knowing Christ personally and directly. And don't, by all means, don't, by inactivity, simply drift away. Rather, if you have drifted, perhaps you have, I have at times, if you have drifted, today's the day. Turn around. Return to Christ and cling to Him all the rest of the days of your life. It is no small thing to see a Christian who endures to the end, who holds on to their faith and continues to trust Christ all the days of their life. Let us not forget the examples of the brothers and sisters who have gone on before us, who held on to trusting Christ until the very end. Because to be sure, we all know stories of people who slowly slid away from following and loving the Lord. Let us not forget that there are many who, by the power of the Spirit, by their devotion, hung on to knowing Christ all the days of their life, and let that be us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You that You're so patient with us, and I thank You that You're so gracious to us. Please, hold us firm to You. We acknowledge the reality that the world is trying to pull us away from You, and we acknowledge the reality of our own broken hearts and old natures that would drift our attention away from You to just good things in life. But let it be neither for us. Let us be the ones who rejoice in the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord all the days of our lives. Hold us to You. Draw us to You. For the one who is far away today, Lord, give them the strength to repent and to return to You. I know this is Your will for their lives. Let it be their will for their lives as well. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.